Good morning, everyone. Great to see you guys today. Part two of our series, You Belong. So glad you are here to experience this. Any of you have that one family member who makes things awkward around the holidays? Or any time throughout the year, they drink too much, talk too much, flirt too much, argue too much, something, okay? One of my uncles used to drink far too much, and he was the kind who, when he got drunk, got mouthy and made everybody feel uncomfortable. I remember as a kid feeling the tension in the room rise whenever he would show up to any family function drunk. He would invite family members to a fight outside, stumble all over the place throughout my childhood. He wrecked a few cars, spent a few nights in jail. You know, precious family memories, right? Maybe your family doesn't include the town drunk, but I'd guess you have a cousin or an uncle or an aunt or an in-law you probably aren't as proud of as some other ones. And when people ask about your relatives, you conveniently skip over him or her, hopeful they won't ask for clarity. Yes, they're family, but just, just barely, right? We'll get back to that in a moment. You just kind of file that away. We'll pick, we'll pick that up in just a second. Last week, we discovered and celebrated the heart of Christmas. We said no matter who you are, what you've done, or what you've become, you are welcome. You belong. And what astounding good news that is. Honestly, that has always been the message of Forest Park. Over the years, we've done our best to cast a large, inclusive net, inviting any and all people to the table of Christ Jesus. And hundreds of people have been encouraged. It's provided a place for people from all walks of life and with varying beliefs and different perspectives and that diverse places on their spiritual journey to connect and to find a home. In fact, I've always considered Forest Park to be a home for the spiritually homeless. And that might be why you have connected here. It might be why you're here this morning. It might be why you're watching online. Maybe for the first time in a long time, you feel accepted. You feel loved. Maybe for the first time, you understand some of the scriptures and feel safe to explore and to ask questions. Maybe for the first time, you aren't afraid of God and you experience him as a loving father rather than an austere judge. And if that is your story, if that's why you're here at Forest Park, we are so happy. That is what we want more than anything. Yet, I know this. Uh, I, I've watched it over the years, the last 22 years that I've been here, seeing people come, go, connect, disconnect. Once people walk through the doors of Forest Park and experience the grace of God, a lot of people have no idea how to fit in. I mean, it's one thing to be accepted. It's something else to be assimilated. It's one thing to be inside the front door. It's a more complicated thing to be integrated into the church at large. In other words, it's one thing to be welcome through the front door. It's more difficult, however, to fit your story, your individual story, into the overall story of the church and into the stories of the people sitting around you. And it's a little bit more challenging for some of us than a few others. Why is that? Because our story is a little bit more jagged than some other people's stories. What I mean is our story isn't as clean as somebody else's story. It doesn't have smooth edges. It isn't soft. It's not easy to understand or explain why we are the way we are. 
To be honest, in the family of God and in the body of Christ, we are that strange family member that I described earlier that other people kind of look at us and go, yeah, they're part of the church, but uh, barely. Does Johnny go to your church? Oh, yeah, Johnny, I forgot about him. Yeah, 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 he goes sometimes, I think. The road you traveled to get here was bumpy. It took some sharp turns, looped back around, had some long stretches of pitch darkness. Sometimes you were in the desert, other times a swamp. But here you are, and you clean up nicely, by the way. And your journey has been many things, but easy is not one of them. Some of it wasn't your fault, but a lot of it was, because after all, you did say yes to a lot of dumb stuff, didn't you, in your life? And you said no to some amazing opportunities. In fact, if you could go back, you would say no to some of the things you said yes to, and you would say yes to some of the things you said no to. You would change a lot of things of your past, but you can't go back, so here you are. And at times, it got worse than that. In fact, you got into a few things you shouldn't have, and I'll leave the details to your imagination. No need to spray the odor around the room. Enough to say this. If people would have seen you at your worst, they wouldn't believe where you are today. If people would have seen you when you were at your worst, they'd be shocked that you're sitting here on a Sunday morning. They'd be amazed that you're actually on a spiritual journey. They'd be blown away of what's happened in your life over the last few years. And now, here you are, walking the journey with Jesus and with us, and you wonder how your story and your experiences fit into the church. I mean, do I really belong? That's the question you have floating in your head. I mean, after the affair, do I really belong? I mean, would the fine print allow me to really be here? I mean, can you sing on the worship team after the life you've led? Can you help our students when you aren't much of a role model yourself? What if you have more questions than you have doubts? Do you really belong? What if you do good Sunday through Wednesday, but you fall off the wagon Thursday through Saturday? Do I really belong? Because so many people ask these questions, and I've learned over time, they don't get a lot of clear answers. They just kind of wonder if maybe they don't actually fit. They're here, but they're not engaged. They're inside the door, but they're not sitting around the table because they're not absolutely certain they belong. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. Here's one that I want to highlight. One, church has been presented across our nation, even in this city, church has been presented as a place designed for religious people. People who live a reasonably good life, overall they make good decisions, vote conservatively, hold to high morals, live a generally disciplined life. Church is often presented as being made up of a group of upstanding citizens, hard workers, patriots, middle to upper middle class, educated, productive members of society, mostly white, usually conservative, pro-life, etc. Those are wonderful people, don't get me wrong. Hard-working, patriotic, middle-class, tax-paying, conservative people are usually great neighbors and make good members of local churches. But you need to know that's not the way it's always been. Church wasn't always so clean. Church evolved into what I just described. And personally, I don't think it's a good thing. Let me back up. Let me get a running start on today's message. 
What if I told you one of the most significant events in human history, the reason you and I are gathered here this morning, came about as a result of some of the most dirty, sordid, sinful, human depravity imaginable. And if it wasn't for a few lying, lustful, immoral people, we wouldn't be here today. And no one would have heard of Christmas. And we wouldn't have a church. And Jesus would have just remained a common street name. You see, one of the unfortunate results of the marketing and the commercialization of Christmas is that Christmas has become too clean. I mean real Christmas, not Santa Claus presents and red bows, not cookies, sleigh bells, and snow. I mean Christmas, Christ Mass, the birth of Jesus. The first Christmas was anything but clean. In fact, it was filled with anxiety and fear, confusion and gossip, death and blood. Swirling around the birth of Christ were accusations of adultery, fear about crazy religious people seeing visions, the murdering of hundreds of babies. And that's only around the Christmas birth event. We'll talk about that at another time and give you some of those details. For today, I'm talking about the Christmas events that led up to the main Christmas event, the birth of Jesus. Without the events that led up to the main event, Christmas would have never happened. And if you think the Christmas event itself the birth of Jesus is surrounded by scandal, you ought to get to know some of the characters involved leading up to the Christmas event. You want to talk about embarrassing family members? You should pay careful attention to the people in the family of Jesus. What do you mean, Scott? Well, maybe you've noticed, maybe you haven't, but there are four count them, four accounts of the life of Jesus written by four different authors from four different perspectives. You've got the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What's interesting is that although each one of the four tell the same overall story, each arranges the events differently, emphasizes certain stories, downplays other stories. For instance, you may not know this, but Mark and John begin with the ministry of John the Baptist and say nothing about the birth of Jesus. So two of the four accounts, they don't even mention the birth of Christ. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, begins with the birth announcement of John the Baptist and then moves on to the birth of Jesus. But Matthew, one of the four, Matthew, is unique. Matthew begins with a genealogy. Boring. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so. Come on, please. Who cares who the grandfather and the great-grandfather and the great-great-great-grandfather of this person is? I mean, just get to the story already. But wait a minute. Matthew must have a reason to begin with the long lineage of the family of Jesus. And actually, Matthew had a few reasons he began that way. Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience. So Matthew was connecting Jesus to Abraham, father of our faith. And Matthew was connecting Jesus to King David. For Matthew's audience, his Jewish audience, the Messiah had to be related to King David. So he was trying to explain very clearly that Jesus, the Messiah, is related to Abraham and he's related to King David. But Matthew could have accomplished 
both of those goals without boring his audience with all the details in between, right? I mean, he could have said, okay, Abraham's grandson was so-and-so, and his grandson was so-and-so, and his grandson was Jesus. And then he could have connected Abraham to Jesus real quickly, and he could have done the same thing about connecting Jesus to David. So he could have wrapped the whole thing up in like two verses. And that's what makes Matthew's genealogy so interesting, because Matthew does something bizarre. He reveals things about Jesus' ancestry people would prefer to keep secret if they were in your family lineage. Just like, like I said, some of our weird uncles, aunts, cousins, brothers, sisters, we all have people in our family line we'd prefer to keep secret, that one cousin who always has a different boyfriend year after year after year, and you've got to get to know the new person all the time. Or Uncle Larry, who always gets drunk on Christmas Eve and pees on the lawn, you know, and you're all embarrassed about it. Do we have to let people know we're related? Well, believe it or not, when it comes to the story of Jesus, Matthew makes no attempt to clean up the family of Jesus. This is so good. About 11 years ago, I heard Pastor Andy Stanley teach through the lineage of Jesus in a Christmas message, and it completely changed how I read the lineage of Christ. It opened my mind and my heart, and I realized, oh my goodness, every single verse is absolutely critical. I realized that these embarrassing characters in the family lineage of Jesus set up the book of Matthew and had an incredible, incredible story to tell me. It was important for Matthew to communicate to his Jewish audience that Jesus was unlike any previous religious leader. In fact, his message was radically different than anything any of them had ever heard before. And the embarrassing family members are exactly why. Let me show you what I learned. Matthew 1, listen to how Matthew opens his gospel. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. You see how he's connected Abraham and David to Jesus. Now watch verse number 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. I just stop right there. Now, when you read Judah and his brothers, you might think, okay, what's the big deal? He's just going through the line. He's just telling us who is related to whom, right? But to the Jewish people reading this story, for the very first time, this line, Judah and his brothers, would cause them to pause and think, okay, this is interesting. I wonder why Matthew mentions Judah and not his brother, Joseph. Because you see, the hero in the eyes of his Jewish audience certainly wasn't Judah. In fact, Judah was far from being Messiah-like. So you would think that when God wanted to bring his son into the world, the Messiah, the Savior of the earth, he would have brought him through Joseph, the real hero. Yet when Matthew pins the genealogy of Jesus, he doesn't even mention Joseph. He doesn't even mention his name. Now, I don't know how much you know about the story of Joseph, but it's an amazing story. Here's the cliff notes. Joseph is greatly loved by his father, Jacob. Jacob makes a beautiful coat for Joseph to wear. It was a sign of his love and his pride 
in his son Joseph. Joseph's brothers become jealous and sell Joseph into slavery. Joseph eventually ends up in Egypt through the providence of God. Joseph ends up second in command over all of Egypt, and because of his position, Joseph is able to save millions of people's lives. So everything about Joseph is what? Amazing. He was accused of crimes he didn't commit. He suffered greatly because of his integrity. He remained faithful and obedient to God. God blesses him incredibly, and eventually Joseph saves his people. Joseph is arguably the greatest example of Jesus in the Old Testament. He was wealthy, powerful, respected, conservative, upstanding. Yet, God picks Judah through which to bring the Messiah. That's amazing. Because that's the whole point. God is always messing up our preconceived ideas of how things ought to work, and he's picking villains rather than heroes to bring about his plan. Now let's get into the details of Judah. You'll see how this is just mind-blowing. Now, the name Judah might not have any significance to you. Most of us haven't even heard about him. We read it in the genealogy and just skip over. We're like, yeah, he must have been somebody important back there in the Old Testament. He plays a supporting role in the story of his younger, more loved, and more famous brother, Joseph, that most everybody has heard about. In other words, when you're reading the Old Testament, we hurry up past the life of Judah to get to Joseph. But today, we're going to slow down and look at Judah. Judah is jealous of his brother, Joseph. And his jealousy eventually turns into hatred. And when Judah gets an opportunity to act on his hatred, he does the unbelievable. Genesis 37, verse 23. When Joseph reached his brothers, he had this coat on, and he reached his brothers. They saw him coming. They stripped off Joseph's long robe took him and threw him into a cistern, an empty cistern with no water in it. Now watch this. When they sat down to eat, now just stop. Talk about cold-hearted people. These brothers take Joseph, strip him, throw him into a cistern, and sat down and have lunch. How cold-hearted must you be to take your brother, throw him into an empty cistern, a large hole in the ground, throw him in there, and sit down and have lunch together and talk about what you're going to do with him now? While they're eating, it says they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with camels carrying sweet resin, medicinal resin, uh, resin, and fragrant resin on their way down to Egypt. So Judah, who? Judah, Judah said to his brothers, he comes up with the idea, what do we gain if we kill our brother and hide his blood? In other words, if we kill him, we're not going to get anything. We got him at our disposal. We might as well do something to get some money out of this thing. Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let's not harm him because, I mean, he is our brother. He's family. And so all his brothers agreed. I mean, what a guy, you know. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. So Judah takes the money and begins to count the money 
as he watches his brother Joseph being dragged off to Egypt, never to be seen again, sold into slavery for the rest of his life. Now, if it ended there, that would be horrible, right? But it actually gets worse. Not only does Judah influence his brothers to sell Joseph, Judah and his brothers take the coat Jacob, their father, made for Joseph, dip the coat in goat's blood, and tell their father that Joseph is dead. Now, I want you to think about this. Judah stands by and watches his father weep and wail with grief, and he never cracks. He never says, we sold him. He never says what we did to Joseph. He lets the father, they're his own father, weep and wail and cry for his son, Joseph. Where's Joseph? Well, meanwhile, Joseph is sold into slavery. We'll get to that in a moment. And then he is a prisoner. And then he becomes prime minister of Egypt. That's about a 20-year span of time. It's an amazing story. Well, meanwhile, when all that's going on in Joseph's life, meanwhile, Genesis 38 tells us what happened to Judah during the trauma Joseph is going through in Egypt. And basically, Judah's life goes from bad to worse. Listen to this. Judah gets married and has three sons. Two of his sons get married, and the oldest son is so evil God takes his life. Imagine having someone, you have to tell that story every single time somebody asks about your kids. Hey, how's your oldest son doing? Oh, not too good. God killed him. That's how evil his oldest son was. His second oldest son was also so evil, he dies. So Judah loses two sons because of their evilness. I wonder where they learned evil. Probably from Judah, who sold his brother into slavery and told the father that he was dead. So Judah tells his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who was married to his first son, who was so evil, God took his life, to go home and to wait for his youngest son, because the oldest have died, the second oldest have died. He's only got one son left. Tamar married the first one. He's dead. The second one's dead. They've got to keep the family lineage going. So he tells Tamar to go home and wait for his youngest son to grow up and become old enough that she can marry him. That was the custom of the day. It was an attempt to keep the family line moving. So Tamar, watch this, waits a few years for Judah's third son, Shelah, to grow up. Well, a few years pass, and Shelah is now old enough to marry. But Judah is not going to keep his promise to give his son to Tamar. I mean, go figure, right? Here's a guy who sold his brother into slavery, convinced his father his brother was dead, watched his father grieve for 20 years, and has two sons who were so evil God killed them. But you expect that Judah is good at keeping his word? No. And Tamar knows how bad her father-in-law is. So in keeping with the wholesome family tradition, she comes up with a plan to trick Judah into having sex with her, and hopefully she will end up pregnant. And you think the Bible's boring, right? So it also happens that Judah, one day, is on his way to where Tamar is living, and she seizes the opportunity to trick him. How does she trick him? 
She dresses up like a temple prostitute who was often used at that time in cult worship. They would sit outside a temple and people would proposition them as an act of worship to false deities. So Tamar, Judah's daughter-in-law, covers her face so Judah wouldn't recognize her, disguises her body so he would not know who it is, sits by the road waiting for Judah to pass by the temple. Eventually he does. And when she sees him come by, she propositions him. And in keeping with his wholesome family tradition, his sexual desires get the best of him and he solicits her for sex. She agrees for the price of a goat. Goats were very, very valuable at that time. But Judah doesn't have a goat. I'm sorry, Tamar, I'm fresh out of goats. So, but I can send you a goat later. Well, she doesn't trust Judah because she knows how evil Judah is. Watch this. You could not have written a soap opera better than this. Watch this. Tamar knows well and doesn't trust her father-in-law to keep his word. So she says, since you don't have a goat, you're going to have to give me something until you send me the goat, and then we'll exchange. So he agrees. And she takes his seal, a ring that he wears around his neck, and his staff as a pledge that he will send the goat to her later. And these three items, seal, ring, and staff, very important in that particular culture. Well, eventually, he sends the goat to Tamar, but Tamar is nowhere to be found because she's not really a prostitute. She goes back home. Judah's asking all around that area, hey, where's that temple prostitute that used to sit out here by the gate? And they're all going, we don't know who you're talking about. Yeah, 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 that one woman woman that sat out here by the temple gate, and they're all going, yeah, we don't know who you're talking about because that's not who she was, and she's gone on about her life. So Judah lets the matter drop, and he hopes that it will never resurface again. The only problem is, and it is a big problem, wherever this prostitute is, she has his seal, his ring, and his staff. Well, several weeks go by, Judah hears nothing, so he thinks the entire thing is over and he's got away with all of it. But three months later, Judah hears through a local gossip channel, aka the church's prayer breakfast, that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. Well, since she has never remarried, Judah is livid. She was supposed to be saving herself for my son, Shayla, but no, she's off having sex with other people, and now she's pregnant. So Judah gets self-righteous and demands that the law be upheld and demands justice and rallies the people in the community to burn her alive. Imagine the scene. They are leading her out to be burned alive for having sex outside of marriage. And now she's pregnant and she sends word to Judah. I am pregnant with the man who owns these things. And she pulls out his ring and his seal and his staff. Can you imagine that moment? So Judah stops the execution and declares, she is more righteous than I am. I did not keep my word and marry her to my third son. So the execution is stopped. Tamar is allowed to live and gave birth to a son named Perez, 
who was born as a result of his father's lust-filled passion spent on a supposed prostitute. Guess what? These people are the distant relatives of Jesus. The family line of Jesus is pretty sleazy. But the story isn't over. Judah still has a secret. Remember Joseph? His younger brother, who he conspired to sell into slavery? Let me set the next part of the story up, because you've got to feel this. It's so good. A famine hits the entire area and where Judah and his brothers live, and Judah's father, Jacob, encourages the brothers to go to Egypt to buy grain. Now, why would they go to Egypt to buy grain? Because Egypt has been collecting grain for years, and they've held it in reserve, and they've got just thousands of tons of grain to give out to the people when they begin to starve. Well, Jacob says, go to Egypt to get some grain, but you're not taking Benjamin. Benjamin is the youngest child, because what happened last time? Judah and his brothers took a young child. Supposedly, he got killed, Joseph. And Jacob thinks Joseph's dead. So you're not taking Benjamin. And they're like, okay, we won't take Benjamin. So they go to Egypt, and when they get to Egypt, Joseph is in charge of the grain. But they don't recognize him because he has makeup on, he has the headdress of an Egyptian, but he recognizes them. And he's hopeful that they have changed. So he puts them to a few tests to see whether or not they will break and admit they've done wrong. How so? Well, Joseph asks his brothers about their younger brother. Hey, where's your younger brother? I know you have another brother. Where's your younger brother? And they said, well, he's he's, he's back home with our father, Jacob. But Joseph accuses them, he accuses them of being spies, and he requires them to go back home and get Benjamin and bring him back to Egypt. So they got to go home and tell their father, Jacob, that the leader in Egypt said, we're not going to get grain unless we bring Benjamin with us. So they convince Jacob to let Benjamin go, and they give word what we promise we will bring Benjamin back safely. So when they go back to Egypt, confront who they believe is just the prince of Egypt, who's actually their brother, they don't know it, and they say, here's our younger brother Benjamin. Well, Joseph accuses Benjamin. He gives them another test. He accuses them of stealing a cup, a silver cup, and he's going to hold Benjamin basically like in prison and let the brothers go back. So they got to go back and tell Jacob, their father, that they've lost their younger brother, Benjamin. And in this moment, Judah has this revelation. Maybe all of these horrible things are happening to me because I've sinned. Maybe I am reaping years and years and years of sowing horrible things. When Judah is finally pushed against the wall, he realizes God has not forsaken him and has, excuse me, has not forgotten his sin and now justice is being served. So he goes up to this leader of Egypt that he doesn't know is his brother and says this to him. Judah replied to Joseph, what can we say to my master? What words can we use? How can we prove we are innocent? God has found your servants guilty. We are now your slaves, all of us, including the one with the cup, Benjamin. Then Judah asked Joseph to keep him as a slave and to please release my brother Benjamin. My father can't deal 
with another tragedy of losing another child. Joseph, in that moment, is overcome with emotion. He sends everybody out of the room except his brothers, and he reveals himself to be the one they thought they sold into slavery so many years ago. Think about this. Judah missed every opportunity to own his sin. He sold his brother into slavery. He lied to his father and broke his heart for 20 years. Two of his sons died because they were so evil. He got, he got who he thought was a prostitute pregnant, but it turned out to be not a prostitute, but his daughter-in-law. He has never owned his sin. Every single chance to own his sin and turn his life around, he missed it. Now this man is standing eyeball to eyeball with his brother, whose cries for help 20 years earlier he ignored as he was being drug off by the Ishmaelites. He never confessed until he had to. He never came clean until he had no choice. He confessed once he had no other way out. Pause the story. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been at a place in your life where you thought you were going to get away with everything? You ever, you ever fallen into sin and you knew it was wrong, but you just kept doing it because you didn't really think you were going to have any consequences? Or if the consequences came your way, you would deal with them when they came. But you really enjoyed what you were doing, so you were just going to stay doing it, stay doing it, stay doing it. Have you ever, ever been to a place where you just knew that some of the pain you were experiencing was due to your own mess of your past, your own sin? but you just didn't have the courage to repent and change, so you just kept going down the road. So, so, so don't be too hard on Judah, because you've done some of the same things. So what happens? Joseph is standing right here in front of Judah. Judah is standing in front of Joseph. Joseph could have just waved his hand, and people would have come in the room, taken Judah out, killed him, and that would have been over. So in that moment... That room is filled with tension. It is filled with guilt. It is filled with remorse. It is filled with fear. And what does Joseph do in that moment? Joseph shows mercy. He forgives Judah and sends him home with incredible, elaborate gifts. It's incredible. Joseph is the savior of Judah. He could have killed him, but he's the savior of Judah. His father and all his brothers, he saves Jacob. He saves all the brothers. Not only that, Joseph is the savior of millions of other people who would have died in the famine had Joseph not been the one who came up with the idea to store all the grain to begin with and dispense it as needed. So Joseph is this incredible leader, savior of Judah and his brothers, savior of millions of people in the New Testament. And when Matthew sits down to write the genealogy of Jesus, he doesn't even mention Joseph. God instead chooses Judah. The liar, the cheat, the selfish person. He chooses Judah over Joseph the Savior to be the great great, 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 times 35, grandfather of Jesus. And let me ask you, if you were God, you wouldn't have done it this way, would you? 
I wouldn't have. If I were God, I wouldn't have chosen Judah. I would have chosen Joseph. I like what's right. I don't like what's wrong. I want to, you know, lift up those who are moral and put down those who are immoral. I want to highlight those who are faithful and put down those who are unfaithful. Because, right, we're, we're all about morals and all about goodness and all about greatness and all about those. I wouldn't have done it that way. I would have picked Judah. But that's the point, isn't it? And, and I guess you are not who you would have picked either. Because, see, you know yourself better than anybody else in this room knows you. You know your sins. You know the lies you've told. You know the things you've done that's hurt other people. You know the excuses you make. You know how you justify all kinds of things in your life. And you probably wouldn't pick you either. So you assume because you wouldn't pick you, God probably wouldn't pick you. Especially when you look around and you, other people seem so much more moral than you and so much better together than you and so much more spiritual than you and so much less selfish and they have less baggage. I mean, God had 12 choices, 12 brothers. Jacob had 12 brothers. God had 12 choices. And who did he put in the genealogy according to Matthew? Judah. The worst one. You know why? It's Christmas. And that's who God is. Those who don't deserve to get in, get in. And those who are last end up being first. And those who are at the back end up being at the front. Remember last week, if you were here, it's, it's the poor, mostly forgotten shepherds that get the announcement from the angel before anybody else. Why? It's Christmas. That's the kind of God we serve. That's why we were singing earlier. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings. That's why we sing and worship. and th That's why we invite people. That, that, that's why we encourage people to come and sit with us and be a part of what's going on. Because God reaches through all the mess and sin and, and mistakes of our life and horrible decisions and picks us and puts us in the middle of grace. He loves us when we were sinners. He picked us. No, we haven't deserved it. No, we didn't earn it. We just receive this incredible gift. We stand before like Joseph every day and God could wave his hand and we would be gone. And instead, he sends us home with elaborate gifts because we're worthy? No, because of his grace and his love. So when Matthew sits down, to write to his Jewish audience about the kind of God he is and who Jesus is and what his kingdom is about, he could have said, and God came through Joseph. But he doesn't. He wants his Jewish audience to know that he came through Judah. What an incredible message of goodness and love and mercy that is. See, there's hope for you. See, there's hope for you. That's why the gospel is good news.
Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you when Matthew sat down to write the story of your son Jesus and how Jesus impacted and led and taught and how he built his kingdom and gave his life for us. Matthew could have put anybody there. And he specifically chose Judah because he was saying something. He was saying that when we give up on people, you don't give up. That when we make a mess of our lives, you come in to clean it up. That even if our entire life is filled with sordid sins and mistakes and horrible decisions and sometimes we think we got away with it and all the stuff that we did years ago comes back to us in our 30s or 40s or 50s and we wonder if we're ever going to get out of all the mess that we created. You remind us that your gospel meets us where we are in the muck and mire of our sin and picks us up and cleans us up and makes us your child. Not because we've earned it, but because you're good. Not because we have climbed some ladder of moral achievement, because your grace reaches us where we are. And we stand in awe of that today. And Father, if there's a person gathered in this room or someone watching online and they just... They just don't feel that way. They feel so low. They feel so lost. They feel so little in your presence. God, I pray you take this message and drive it home that even when you are a liar and a thief and an adulterer, even when you keep the truth hidden for years and break your own father's heart, even when you have children with people that you never even thought you were gonna have children with and now they follow you the rest of their life, when your whole life is a mess, you can still meet us where we are, clean us up, and use us to bring about the greatest birth that ever was, the birth of our Savior, Jesus. Drive that home to our people today. We honor you, we worship you, we thank you for loving us. It's Christmas, and we are amazed at the story. In Jesus' name, amen. Good news, right? good news. Hey, before you go today, I want you to know a few things. One, if you are new here to Forest Park, I'd love for you to take a moment and fill out our Connect card. You can do it with your phone. Very simple. You see the link right there. Take you about 30 seconds. Hit send, and we get your information, and you go by our information center, our new here area, right, up, right by the front door. We have a box filled with some stuff inside that's a gift from us to you. And we just want to let you know how appreciative we are that you're here today, and we just want to say thank you. If you don't want to use your phone to do it, the white card that's there in front of you says, Welcome Home, I believe. You can fill it out and take you again 30 seconds or so, drop it off. we got a free gift that we want to give to you to say thanks for being here. Two other things. One, our Kid Venture uh, Christmas program is December 20th. Our kids are rehearsing, practicing. They're going to be presenting a song next week, but then also the entire production is going to be on the 20th. We'd love to have you here to support our kids. I know parents will come and grandparents of kids will come, but we would love to those of you who have children in it or grandchildren in it, come and support our kids and those who are working so hard to make this a fun thing. I saw a video of some rehearsal yesterday and it's so sweet and we want you to be here to celebrate with our kids. Last thing is our Christmas Eve services right here, 9 a.m., 11 a.m. on Christmas Eve morning. What a wonderful time to come celebrate 
and rejoice over what Christmas is about before you drink the gallon of eggnog and the dozen cookies and all the things that you will do over Christmas that you'll have to come back to church next week and repent over, right? <laughs> Let's hope that's not the case. But anyway, hopefully uh, you'll come. It's a wonderful time to bring a friend, family member to come early on Sunday morning, Christmas Eve, celebrate. Very rare that Christmas happens like this and Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, so a wonderful opportunity to come and celebrate together, okay? I hope you have an incredible day. Thank you for being with us. We'll see you again soon.